Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And tonight, straight from the source, Donald Trump's emergency appeal to the Supreme Court could be his best and last shot to quash his trial till after the election or forever. His argument to the justices is that without absolute immunity from criminal prosecution, the presidency as we know it will cease to exist. What does his former attorney make of that? We'll ask him in just a moment. Plus, shockwaves from Washington to Warsaw tonight as the former president is deriding a 75-year-old security alliance with U.S. allies. Instead, Trump says Russia can do whatever the hell it wants. Our guest tonight knows firsthand just how close he came to pulling out of NATO before. We're also learning new unsettling information about the woman who walked into Joel Osteen's megachurch with her son at her side, opening fire with an AR-15. What authorities say they found written on that assault-style weapon. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. In case of emergency, break glass. And facing a five-alarm fire that could doom his chances at the presidency, not to mention potentially land him in prison, tonight Donald Trump is pulling the alarm. The alarm in this case is an emergency appeal to the Supreme Court. It is the one that we have been waiting for. And it's also the one that Trump and his team of attorneys are hoping will either delay or deny a trial from happening at all. These are the charges brought by Jack Smith stemming from Trump's efforts to overturn the election in 2020. His attorneys say that the former president should be cloaked in absolute immunity from criminal prosecution for any of the actions that he took while he was in office. But in bringing their case to the highest court that there is, the Trump team has also sharpened its focus and cut their arguments in half. That leaves the Supremes with some tremendous questions that have never been asked or answered before. Because we've also never had a president who has acted like this before. But first things first, the question is, will they even agree to take the case? And will the Trump strategy work? Here tonight to answer that, potentially, is an attorney who used to represent Donald Trump, including on the classified documents case, Jim Trusty. And it's great to have you here. Jim, obviously, you know, Trump is the first former president to ever be charged with a crime. Do you think that the justices will want to have the final word on this significant of an issue? Yeah, I don't know that they want to, but I think they'll own up and take the responsibility of doing it. I think Justice Roberts is someone who's very concerned about the reputation of the Supreme Court. It probably doesn't like the fact that you've had these calls for packing the court and changing its composition. And I know that he's probably not eager to have, you know, fingerprints on, on huge electoral issues. But it is important. And as you said in your opening, it's new territory to be talking about absolute immunity and I guess the one thing to just point out preliminarily, Caitlin, is, you know, absolute sounds like it's this dramatic thing where the president can just do whatever the heck he wants and break the law. But really, it's still wedded to this idea of what's called the outer perimeter of official duties, a whole bunch of legal language. But it basically means it, it's not a free pass to do whatever the heck you want as president. It's a question of whether it's tied in sufficiently to your legal obligations 
as the president to be, you know, to warrant immunity. And that's that's the issue, a little narrower than the word absolute suggests. But is that so? Because the argument that his attorneys are, are still standing by, even though they, they say it's dramatic in this filing, is the one that was brought up at the appeals court hearing that, that you know, theoretically, he could order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate his political opponent, and he could not be prosecuted for that until, his attorneys argue, he was impeached and convicted by the Senate and removed from office. Yeah, I'm, I'm not in love with their biting on the hypothetical of the SEAL Team 6, and maybe it's a little bit of shooting for the stars and settling for the moons. You know, they take an absolutist kind of broader position than they need to, but all the while hoping the Supreme Court will, will come in on a more narrow ground. I think the Supreme Court will end up taking it, and I think they'll be very interested in the idea of essentially qualified immunity. I mean, it's absolute immunity, but it's still tempered by the idea of official duties. And I think that's something that they need to rule on uh, prior to him going to trial on either of these cases. If they take it, as, as you just said, that you think that they will, you know, it's a claim that's been rejected as broad or as narrow as the scope is, you know, however you define it. It's been rejected by two lower courts. Trump's team seems to think the Supreme Court will, will reverse those rulings. But uh, do you see that happening? I think it's a real possibility. I mean, look, the D.C. court uh, has not exactly been home turf for President Trump. And, you know, keep in mind the history of this particular issue. It was Jack Smith that in his eagerness to keep the early trial date, the Super Monday trial date, said, let's get the Supreme Court to expedite. Let's have them consider it, but let's have them hurry. Supreme Court saw right through that kind of speedy trial imposture and, and said, no, we'll take it in the regular course. The D.C. court has still done everything they can to accelerate the timetable, including telling the parties if there's an en banc motion, which is, means uh, either a reconsideration or a reconsideration by the entire D.C. circuit on this issue, that they're not going to stop the clock, that everything has to move at an incredibly expedited pace. So I don't see, I don't see anything wrong with asking for a stay and seeking Supreme Court cert. I think for presidential issues in the year we're in, there's a good chance that they end up taking it on the substance. But isn't part of that just his strategy to burn time here? I mean, look, you can look at it as one of two things. Maybe it's a strategy for him to buy time. But again, starting point is Jack Smith asserting there's a speedy trial right for the public that requires that a complicated case, essentially, uh, you know, insurrection case, but masquerading as a fraud charge, to say that that has to be tried in March is absurd. And for a court to basically say, unlike almost any other federal court that deals with scheduling, to say a non-incarcerated defendant's trial has to happen by date X, I don't care about conflicts, I don't care about attorney issues, that's the exception, not the norm. And I think for this case, it would be nice to see normalcy. It would be nice to see kind of tr traditional treatment by the federal court system and the prosecutor and a lot of transparency and not pushing for an early trial date and then blaming the other side for delay. Well, in the reverse, of course, is Trump's team trying to delay this, but then also complaining that this case could potentially be happening at the height of the election season. Jim Trusty, as always, great to have you. I think we're past the point of normalcy, but, but glad you're still hanging on to that. Uh, of course, when you look at Trump's appeal to the Supreme Court here, as we read through this, one thing that stood out was how his attorneys cite the landmark case known as the United States versus Nixon four different times. At one point, his attorneys say that the Watergate case is a reason that they believe this trial should also be delayed. 
There's almost no one better to talk about the lessons from that case than my next guest here tonight, Richard Nixon's former White House counsel, John Dean. It's great to have you here, John. I wonder, when you look at this, do you think Trump's attorneys are, are missing the point of that case? Or what did you make of how many times it surfaced in this filing? Well, I've noticed they've drawn on the Nixon precedents uh, across the board. They, uh, we've had very few presidents who've been in front of uh, the Supreme Court. And the case they're drawing on, he actually was already out of office. Uh, the Fitzgerald case, which did give a president civil immunity. So I, and, and that sort of drew the line at official conduct or the outer perimeter of official conduct. So we've really never had the same issue. And the form that's coming to the court right now, Caitlin, is not the full case. They're asking for an application for a stay. They're asking that the Court of Appeals not send the case back to the D.C. trial judge. They want to hold that up until at least they file a, a, an appeal for the full court to come back up and take on the case again. It's a little confusing, I know, uh, but it's a unique opportunity if the Supreme Court wants to get rid of this case. That, that request for stay, that application, went to the circuit justice who is Roberts in this, uh, Chief Justice Roberts. Mm -hmm. he, could, he could make a decision right now to chuck the whole thing. Yeah, it'll be fascinating because that would be probably the most dramatic outcome here, which, you know, we've very dramatic. People outcome. are people are torn on, on whether or not that'll be the case. But if it does go to the Supreme Court, if they don't chuck the whole thing, you know, you testified at Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing. And you talked about how you believed that if if he was confirmed, that it would have we would have the most presidential powers friendly Supreme Court in the modern age. And so if it does go, you know, how do you think someone like a Justice Kavanaugh We'll look at the arguments that we were just talking about there with Jim Trustee. I think he generally looks favorably on presidential powers. He worked at the White House. Uh, he was in the council's office, in fact, uh, knows how the machine works and how to make it work better. Uh, he knows the restrictions that are on it. And his court has generally been very presidential uh, power pro uh, and favorable. So I think that, uh, but this is a different issue. This is really the responsibility of whether a president has any boundaries at all. Uh, so I, you know, I would be, I would be shocked if they, when they get to the substance of this case, if they grant immunity, it really would be a, really a dramatic change in the nature of the American presidency. It's yeah. actually a foundation for a dictatorship. Well, and reading, you know, presidential powers is one thing and thinking a president has power when it comes to climate change, executive orders or, or something of that nature. But if he's someone, you know, who worked in the White House counsel's office, who, who understands what the powers of the presidency are. I mean, could you see a Supreme Court justice looking at Trump's actions in Georgia and in Pennsylvania and what he did surrounding 2020 and thinking that that fits into the job description? No, I cannot. In fact, I think that he would find an abhorrent uh, behavior, uh, unacceptable for uh, a president. And so that, but, you know, I don't think that's the issue that's in front of him at the time, but he's certainly well aware of the underlying behavior. He's also aware, Caitlin, of the fact that Donald Trump is using the process 
to try to get out of this whole thing, if he thinks he can get reelected by fooling enough people as to what he does and doesn't do and get back in office, that he can kill these cases. He can tell the, his attorney general of choice, kill the case, drop them. So the federal cases would go away. And they could put up a pretty good argument to tie up the state cases, at least while he remained in office. What would that mean for the presidency if he did that? If he did get in and we, I mean, it's not that far-fetched if he did have the attorney general just make his cases disappear. Well, he has said he wants to be a dictator for one day. That's all it takes to change the American presidency. He'll have a stack of executive orders lined up that will, in fact, make the presidency a dictatorship, even if he doesn't call it that. If he just says, I have a, uh, a modernized the American presidency, giving him powers the likes of which we've never known in, in the American presidency, the checks and balances would go away. He'd be unleashed, and I think we'd be in trouble as a country. John Dean, a stark warning. Thank you for joining tonight. Also here to break down that filing, a pair of former federal prosecutors, Christy Greenberg and Ellie Honig. Ellie, who is actually quoted in this brief, I should know. I Were you a little surprised to see that? I'm learning that right now. I, I, I fear <laughs> what they quoted me on. You haven't seen this? No. You're quoted in this. No, no one <laughs> I read the brief you? quickly. Tell me what I'm quoted on. They cite, well, it's in a footnote, but they cite That's something you wrote, which is that, that Jack Smith never uses the E oh, word, I, which is... Election. Yes. I, look, I'm, I'm dubious of Jack Smith's motives. It's clear to everyone. See, we're always breaking news here on The Source. Yeah, right to the person's face. <laughs> uh, my criticism of Jack Smith is obviously he's pushing to get this in before the election. I think for good reason, but there's a level of disingenuousness in his refusal to say that's why. And I argue in the piece that I think they mentioned here that he should just say it. Say what we all know and say what the vast majority of the American people understand and believe is correct, that he's pushing to get this done before trial. Before the election, excuse me. Can we talk about, you know, what the Supreme Court is looking at here? Because there are a few different pathways they can take. One of them, John Dean already laid out for us, so we'll cross it off the list, which is that they could just say, no thanks, we're not taking this up. They could deny Trump's request to pause this. What else do, could they do here? So this application today was just for, as John Dean said, for a stay, to put this on put this on hold in the Supreme Court so that it can go back to Judge Chutkin and she can set a trial date. The brief actually says that what they want to do is go to the whole D.C. circuit en banc, meaning all of the judges will hear this, and then potentially, depending on how that goes, go to the Supreme okay, but pause. Court. Is it that unlikely, though? Because it would have to get, they'd have to have enough judges to where one of the three judges who ruled this to the, to to weigh in, to basically reject their own ruling, which is not going to happen, right? I, I don't think, not only would the three not reject it, but I think the fact that you had the timing here be so quick means that this has this opinion was socialized with the other justices, would, my, would be my guess, in the D.C. Court of Appeals. Okay, so we're waiting to see what they decide. I mean, now Chief Justice John Roberts, given his role here, What's his next instruction to, to Jack Smith? What's the next timeline here? So I, I think it's really important people understand there's a, a lot of procedural terminology flying here. A lot of legal nerd words, mandate, uh, certiorari, all that. This is it. This is the moment of truth. This is where, at the end of this, the Supreme Court's going to tell us, are they putting a pause on the district court, the trial court, and are they taking the case? The first thing I think we're going to see is the chief justice is going to say, OK, Donald Trump, we have your request here to pause this. We'll give Jack Smith's team a couple days to respond. And then the Supreme Court is going to decide first, will we keep this on pause? And most importantly, 
Will we take this case? And to that end, I was looking at the brief here, not the footnote mentioning me, but I was looking at the brief here. Donald Trump's team is desperately trying to convince the Supreme Court, you have to take this case, you the Supreme Court. And they have the following quote, Donald Trump's team has the following quote in their brief, quote, it is of imperative public importance that President Trump's claims of immunity be resolved by this court, the Supreme Court, and quote, only this court, the Supreme Court can definitively resolve them. You know who they're quoting there? Jack, Jack Smith. Smith. That's a tough one. And you know what's interesting, though, about this, when you talk about this moment of truth that we're in, it, it, the Supreme, Trump could lose here on the merits, but still win theoretically yeah. because it's delayed so far that then the trial doesn't happen before the election. Right. And I think the Supreme Court knows that. And just like we saw in the oral argument in Colo with the Colorado ballot, where the judge Justices were very clear about, we care about the consequences. We think it's just a step too far to disqualify him from the ballot. That seemed to be the consensus. And similarly here, they get the consequences. They know that if they just sat on this, that it would effectively mean he does have immunity, even if not on the merits, just because it doesn't happen before the election. I don't think they will do that. I think within a week or two, they're going to make a decision about whether or not this goes back to the judge in the trial court. And I think that because this question, yes, it is a question of first impression. It hasn't been decided by the Supreme Court before. But this is yeah. such a strong opinion by the D.C. Court of Appeals. I don't see them overturning it. And for that reason, I do think this goes back to Judge Chutkin. But also, this is such a big week. I think every, you know, we talk about Trump's legal developments. This week stands alone when I'm looking at the schedule, because also on Thursday in Georgia, the judge there is there's going to be a hearing. And he said today that there is a world where the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, could be disqualified if she benefited financially from the relationship that she's now acknowledged she has with a prosecutor on her team. I mean, that could have monumental impact on this case. Yeah. Everything is happening this week. I mean, literally every case involving Donald Trump criminal case has something important going on. This dispute is playing out in Jack Smith's immunity case. We also had a hearing today on the Mar-a-Lago case that suggests that might be delayed. Thursday, we have a hearing on the Manhattan DA's hush money case that will tell us likely whether that's actually going to trial in March. And then, Caitlin, what you just raised, very worrisome signs for the DA, Fonnie Willis, there. The judge said, we are having a hearing. Fonnie Willis said, judge, we should not even be having a hearing. You should throw this out. Judge said, nope, we need to have a hearing. Could be really troublesome for the DA. Big legal week. We'll be consulting our experts here. Christy Greenberg, Ellie Honig, thank you both. Also tonight, there is global outrage that is mounting after Donald Trump threatened to encourage an attack on NATO allies if they don't pay enough in defense. His former national security advisor will react next. Also, an NFL dynasty has been cemented, but not without plenty of drama. Well, we are now learning about that moment on the sideline with Travis Kelsey and coach Andy Reid. Bob Costas will be here to talk to us about it all. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. 
This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, former President Donald Trump is defending his approach to the military alliance between the U.S. and key allies known as NATO. He claims that he actually fortified NATO by encouraging countries to pay their fair share of defense spending while he was in office. Of course, these posts, I should note, are coming after he is facing major backlash from the international community after he said that he would disregard what is at the heart of the NATO alliance. If one nation is attacked, others will come to its defense. Instead, Trump said that he actually encouraged Russia, and I'm quoting him now, to do whatever the hell it wants. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. It's worth pausing here to mention that the only time NATO's Article 5, that collective defense article, was ever invoked was by the United States after 9-11. CNN has new reporting tonight about what a second Trump term could mean, though, for it and his orders to top military officials back in 2018, demanding that the U.S. withdraw from NATO. Jim Shudo reveals these details, these officials that believed that Trump's direction was a lawful order, and they actually drew up the plans to execute it. My next guest was also in the White House at that time and recounts the whole situation as frightening. Former National Security Advisor for the Trump administration, Ambassador John Bolton, is here. And Ambassador, it's great to have you. I just wonder, kind of bluntly, if Donald Trump is reelected, do you think that means the end of NATO as we know it now? Yeah, uh, yes, I do. I think he will withdraw. I, I think uh, you have to take uh, what he's saying is coming directly from uh, from from what he has long been saying privately and, and in some cases publicly. It, it's a little disturbing now to hear some Republicans saying, well, you know, he's he's just bargaining with NATO or this is just the way he talks. Uh, that That's not right. He, he has used this failure of uh, many members, a majority of NATO members, to spend 2% of their GDP on defense, as they all voluntarily committed to do in 2014. Uh, not to strengthen NATO, but to help destroy it. It is true that after his criticisms, uh, more was spent by European members of, of NATO on defense. But that wasn't going to change his mind because there were a lot of other criticisms he had as well. So, uh, you know, it is, uh, I, I, was, I was there with him in the spring of 2018 at the uh, NATO summit in Brussels where he damn near did get out of NATO. He is serious about it. And whether you're a Trump supporter or a Trump opponent, uh, don't, don't think he's kidding about this one. Yeah, I, I noticed he doesn't mention that, you know, Germany is spending that percent of its GDP on defense now, something that, you know, is behind when they said they would get to it, but they are actually there. When he was talking about that conversation, with the well, world they're leader. not actually, not yet. But they're on track to be at two percent this year, I believe, right? No, they're not. They're not going to make it. Oh, 
Okay, well, they say that they are. That's well, the but, trouble. The Euro Europeans, we'll make, the Europeans make it hard to make the case. The, the case is, however, we're not doing this at a charity for the Europeans. We're, we're supporting NATO because it's a core American national interest to do it. And I think that's the case, frankly, that political leaders of both parties in this country have not made effectively over the past several decades. Yeah, well, I will note the German officials say that they are there. But, but on the point of what Trump is saying, he's recounting that conversation. Do you know which world leader he's talking about there? I think he made that conversation up. I think that's a fairly typical uh, Trump thing to do uh, uh, because it makes it sound very dramatic and, and uh, proving his point. Uh, but just because that conversation is made up, again, people should not think that he's making up the point about withdrawing or, or that he doesn't particularly care what Russia do, does to those who don't spend adequately on their own defense. Uh, I think this is, this is exactly uh, his view of alliances. They're totally transactional. It's like you add up every day how much did you spend, how much did we spend. And I tell you, the, what it shows about Trump's view of alliances is if he's willing to knife NATO, He's willing to knife the relationship with Israel, with Japan, with South Korea. There's not a U.S. alliance out there that's safe with that kind of attitude. Well, can you listen to what Senator Marco Rubio said about this? Because I think this is a key point on how Republican senators and just lawmakers generally are treating Trump's comments, not as threats, but here's how he put it to Jake yesterday. Well, that's not what happened, and that's not how I view that statement. I mean, he was talking about something, a story that he talked about happened in the past. By the way, Donald Trump was president, and he didn't pull us out of NATO. You know, in fact, American troops were stationed throughout Europe as they are today. They were then as well. I mean, he's saying it's not really a, a, a threat in his view. Well, he should have been sitting next to me at the NATO summit in 2018 when I, I was called up by Trump to his seat at the table. And he said, well, should we do it? And I said, go up to the line, but don't go over it. I went back to my seat with Mike Pompeo and Jim Mattis, who said, what's he going to do? And I didn't know. That's how close it was. And I would say to Marco, for whom I have an awful lot of respect, uh, if you don't think Trump is serious about getting out of NATO, then why did you recently co-sponsor legislation requiring approval by two-thirds of the House and the Senate before a president can withdraw from NATO. Is there some other president or would-be president out there that you think is going to withdraw other than Donald Trump? I'd certainly like to hear that. Ambassador Bolton, as always, thank you for coming on tonight. Meanwhile, Donald Trump, not just those NATO comments, is drawing more ire for every for other things he said over the weekend. Something he said about Nikki Haley's husband, who I should note is currently serving in the U.S. military overseas. That comment with our political panel in a moment. Nikki Haley tonight firing back at Donald Trump after he questioned where her husband, Michael, was during a rally in her home state. Where's her husband? Oh, he's away. He's away. Where, what happened to her husband? What happened to her husband? Where is he? He's gone. We know the answer to that question because he is in his second active duty deployment overseas, supporting the United States Africa Command as part of the South Carolina Army National Guard. Nikki Haley responded to those comments from Trump earlier on CNN with Jake Tapper. 
The first thing I'll say is it's disgusting. If you don't understand that everybody knows someone who has either lost their life or served this country in a way that's allowed us to keep our freedoms, that is not someone who deserves to be commander in chief. Here tonight, former Trump White House communications director Alyssa Farrah Griffin and former Biden deputy assistant Jamal Simmons, also a senior communications aide in the Biden White House and now a senior contributor. Uh, Alyssa, I mean, All the things. Yeah, <laughs> literally, your resume is so impressive. Uh, Alyssa, though, when you look at this, I mean, at one point, Haley today told reporters the most harm that Trump has ever come across is whether a golf ball hits him on a golf cart and you're going to stand, go and mock our men and women in the military. I don't care what party you're in. That's not okay. Yeah, President Bone Spurs. I mean, this is fascinating what Nikki Haley is doing because it's not new that Donald Trump denigrates the military. He did it to John McCain. He did it to Gold Star families. But I think when it personally hits you, it brings out a certain realization of just how far the Republican Party has descended in the era of Trump. Not a single prominent Republican other than Governor Chris Sununu denounced these comments by Donald Trump. Um, I'm here for what she's doing because, listen, South Carolina primary is coming up. There's a virtually no shot that she's going to win there. But she's litigating the case against Donald Trump, I would argue, frankly, harder than Joe Biden is at this point. I mean, people laughed at that comment in South Carolina yeah. in the crowd. It's pretty amazing to me. As a Democrat who spent my entire professional life in trying to navigate the Republican advantage on national security, it is amazing to watch this president walk away from that advantage on national security and have so many conservatives follow him down that path. Just give it away. Um, there are 170,000 American active duty troops right now serving abroad. Everyone, not every one of them, but so many of them, most of them, almost all of them have families, right? And so the president of the United States is not just insulting Nikki Haley when he goes after one of these troops. He's insulting 170,000 American families. I just don't understand how the rest of the Republican Party can go along with this. That's a really good point in the terms of, like, if you're thinking of it even through a political lens, that, that Democrats struggle to, to have ground with veterans. And here Trump is actively mocking, and he doesn't suffer any consequences for it. I mean, he has a history of doing this dating back to John McCain when he mocked his prisoner of war status. Well, and he, he's frankly flipped Republican Party orthodoxy on its head. And right now, the Senate is debating aiding Ukraine, an ally. He this week said that we should, you know, he would possibly withdraw from uh, NATO, as you were talking to John Bolton about. This is literally goes against Republican orthodoxy dating back to Reagan. And now we're the party of isolationism. And it's Joe Biden who's saying we need to get aid out the door and we need to stand by our allies and be firm on national defense. I want to talk about Democrats as well, because there was a moment in the Super Bowl last night that everyone was talking about this ad by Robert Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s. It was from a PAC that's supporting him. This was the ad in case anyone missed it. Do you want a man for president who's seasoned through and through? A man who's old enough to know and young enough to do? Well, it's up to you. Obviously, that is a reference to JFK's 1960 ad. It did not sit well with members of the Kennedy family, as his entire campaign has not. And he's apologizing for it. But, I mean, it was pinned on his Twitter profile for, for most of the last 24 hours. Yeah, it was. They spent $7 million, his super PAC spent $7 million. Let's keep in mind, $7 million after a Republican donor, Tim Mellon, gave them $15 million, a uh, Trump donor gave them $15 million, and DNC is fighting a thing with the FEC about that complaint. Mm -hmm. But there is a, um, 
The Kennedy family has not been in favor of this the entire time. He had to apologize to some of his family members for using some of the images of their family in, in the ad. And it's just sort of icky that he would use this ad at a time when the president of the United when he's running against a Democratic president about, and it's a harken back to the Democratic president, most of us in the Democratic Party revere as one of our greatest leaders. Jamal Simmons, Elizabeth Griffin, great to have both of you here on set tonight. Thank you. Also, there was that shove on the sideline last night, if you missed that. Also, there's a stunning admission made today and an NFL legacy cemented. All of the developments coming out of Super Bowl 58, Bob Costas is here. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. After nearly five quarters of nail-biting football yesterday, the Kansas City Chiefs beat the San Francisco 49ers in a thrilling Super Bowl. I was lucky to be there to witness it. And we just are learning about how many people at home watched it, making it, it was incredibly watched. It was the most watched thing, actually, on television since the moon landing. Yes, that is not an exaggeration. The most watched thing on television since the moon landing. It averaged 123 0.4 million viewers, and of course, part of that was an extended Super Bowl as it was the only one to go into overtime, or only the second Super Bowl, I should note, to go into overtime. But the first one that was played under those new postseason overtime rules, rules that I should note, apparently multiple 49ers players were unaware of. I didn't even know about the new overtime, uh, overtime rules, so it was a surprise to me. But I didn't even realize that the the playoff rules were different in overtime, so I I assumed you just want the ball because you score a touchdown and win, but I guess that's not the case. And here tonight to talk about the Super Bowl, legendary sports broadcaster Bob Costas. And, and can I just first, Bob, get your reaction to what we are learning? Because I'm looking mm -hmm. at the numbers here. The The record was set just last year when, when the Chiefs played against the Eagles. 115 million people watched. What I mean, now the fact that 123.4 million people watched, the most people to watch something since the moon landing is pretty incredible. Yeah, and it just affirms what's long been obvious. In a now fractionalized media universe, the one thing that aggregates gigantic audiences consistently and that reigns over not only all of sports, but all of American entertainment is football in general and the NFL in particular. Even the conference championship games get higher ratings. Forget about the Super Bowl where you bring in many more casual viewers. The conference championship games and the playoff games that lead up to them get higher ratings than the NBA Finals or the World Series. Even if you're a baseball fan or a basketball fan, before you're a football fan, you can't deny those facts. Why do you think that is? I mean, as someone you know, with the career that you've had and the people that you talk to, why do you think that is? Well, first of all, the game televises well. Each game is just one a week for that team. So therefore, it used to be 14 games, then 16. Now it's still just 17, which is still roughly a tenth of a Major League Baseball season and a fifth of a hockey season or an NBA season. 
And every playoff game is the equivalent of a seventh game in hockey, the NBA, or MLB. And a seventh game always gets a higher rating. It's a one and done every time. And that's why, and I don't think enough is made of this, when Kansas City plays Buffalo, let's say, in a playoff game, you don't have the same concern that other leagues have. Oh, gee, they're small markets. It'd be better if it was the Yankees against the Dodgers or back in the day, the Bulls against the Lakers or whatever it might be. The NFL is bulletproof from that because even if you're not watching the Kansas City Chiefs or the Buffalo Bills, you're watching whatever your team is regionally, the pregame show, the halftime shows, the postgame shows, and all the highlights bring you Josh Allen. They bring you Patrick Mahomes. And so the Kansas City Chiefs, not just because of their success, but because of the league in which they play, are now America's team. No disrespect to the Cowboys. They've owned that for a long time, but they haven't been to the Super Bowl since the mid-90s. The Chiefs have been to the conference championship six straight years. They've been to the Super Bowl four of the last five, and they've won it three of those four, including the last two in a row. In Patrick Mahomes, they have one of the most dynamic players in all of sports. In Andy Reid, they have now a well-recognized Hall of Fame coach. Travis Kelsey bound for the Hall of Fame even before he hooked up with Taylor Swift. You add that element, that storyline, this is America's team right now for the foreseeable future. Yeah, it's pretty incredible how many different audiences it pulls together. But but one thing that was stunning to me as a huge football fan was to hear the 49ers players saying today that, that they were not read mm-hmm. in on these new overtime rules. And I was I was sitting at the game and I asked – I didn't know what the NFL rules on overtime were. And I asked mm-hmm. someone seated behind me about it. And he said that whoever scores first wins the game. But there's a, obviously a second possession that Wrong. the other team gets. <laughs> I mean, what did you make of that? It's very surprising, to put it mildly, that the players wouldn't be aware. Maybe it has no real effect on the outcome of the strategy as long as the coaches, the coordinators, and the quarterbacks are aware. Um, It may not make that much of a difference. On the other hand, Chiefs players said that this had been drilled into them all season long and then repeatedly throughout the playoffs. The differences in the rules. The rule is, and it's changed over time, In the regular season, if the team who gets the ball first scores a touchdown, the other team has a chance to possess and tie the game and prolong it, after which it becomes sudden death. Um, No, I'm I'm wrong. I just misspoke. If the the team that gets the ball first scores... See, no one knows what the rules are. (laughs) uh, uh, Yeah, no, I do do know. I do know. If the team in the regular season, if the team that gets the ball first scores on a field goal, the second team gets a chance to possess the ball, score a touchdown to win it, or score a field goal to tie it, prolong the game, which then becomes sudden death. Now, in the postseason, if the team who gets the ball first scores a touchdown, then the other team, the game doesn't end then, the other team gets a chance to possess the ball. If they don't score, the team that had scored first wins the game. If they do score and tie it, then the game continues, but it's sudden death. The next score, no matter who scores it, the next score wins the game. Now, what you don't have, and I've always thought this was crazy, the clock doesn't matter. There may have been some San Francisco players who thought, well, there's still two minutes or whatever it was left in the game Mm -hmm. when Hardman scores the winning touchdown off the Mahomes pass. They may not have realized that the game ended there. But from the standpoint of drama, taking the clock out of the game, clock management, the race against time, how you use the timeouts, all that stuff, that's always been part of football's drama and theater. They take that completely out of the game. So I've always thought that they should play a timed period, not 
not in the regular season. There's reasons to get it over more quickly then. But in the postseason, they should play a time period. And they can have the rules committee figure out what that is, 10 minutes. Maybe it's a full 15. Maybe it's a full 15 in the Super Bowl. That would end the confusion and also increase the drama. This is why I think that you should be in charge, Bob Costas, obviously. And also it's something that should have come up in practice. <laughs> well, Thank you uh, for coming on today. Yeah, I really right. appreciate you. <laughs> and I should note, you heard <laughs> thank, him mention thank there, you, Patrick. Caitlin. Thank you. Patrick Mahomes. He is actually going to be on CNN joining Abby in the next hour, so make sure you stay tuned to watch that and see his reaction to winning the Super Bowl again. Also tonight, we're following dramatic new details that we are getting from officials out of Texas. A woman yesterday entered Joel Osteen's megachurch armed with an AR-15 and her young son in tow and opened fire. What the sticker on her gun said, what we are learning from police who have also uncovered anti-Semitic writings. We're learning more tonight from officials about the woman who opened fire at a popular Texas megachurch yesterday. Police say that 36-year-old Genesee Moreno had a history of mental health issues and also criminal charges, including assault. They said that when she entered the pastor Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church with her seven-year-old son in tow, that she was armed with an AR-15 and a 22 caliber rifle. No formal motive has been determined yet, but police say that there are possible clues, including that she had her AR-15 emblazoned with a sticker that read Palestine and also had a history of anti-Semitic writings. I mentioned anti-Semitic writing. We do believe that there was a f- familial dispute that has taken place between uh, her ex-husband and her ex-husband's family, and some of those individuals are of uh, are Jewish. So we believe that that is might might possibly be where all of this stems from. Tonight, it's still unclear why she chose to go to this Christian megachurch, but after firing 30 rounds, she was killed by two off-duty law enforcement officers who happened to be there. The gunfire left her child in critical condition, and another man was also injured. For more on what we are learning about this tonight, I want to bring in Jennifer Messia, CNN contributor and writer for The Trace, a news outlet focused exclusively on gun violence. I just wonder what stands out to you when you are looking at the shape of this shooter's profile. Well... We saw the Palestine sticker on the gun, right? So immediately our minds went to, is this political? Is this an outgrowth of the violence that's happening in the Middle East? It looks like this shooter had a number of mental health issues. The Palestine um, reference might have been stemming from a dispute with her ex-husband's family. Um, But what we see is this is the 14th mass shooter or active shooter in a high-profile setting who has been placed in an emergency hold and not committed afterward and got to keep her guns. Your only, uh, a gun ban is only triggered if you are committed for a longer stay. And already the Lewiston shooter, even the Virginia Tech shooter, we're seeing this time and again where we have uh, a, a, like a pattern of behavior that doesn't add up to a conviction, doesn't add up to a gun ban based on mental health. But it's in the aggregate something that another country would look at this and deny a gun sale. But here in America, we don't have many mechanisms like that, particularly in Texas. Yeah. And what do you I mean? So she was held, but it, it's because it has to be longer. I mean, we saw a similar situation with when we were talking about the main shooting, the Lewis shooting that you mentioned there. I mean, the other things though, that they're looking at is a, a string of arrest for relatively minor offenses. Right. Unless you're convicted for a felony that carries more than a year in prison, um, you can be arrested many times. You can be held for many emergency mental health holds, and you can still buy a gun. Jennifer, I know you'll keep watching this. Thank you for joining tonight. 
Also tonight, we are now hearing the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin back in the hospital in the intensive care unit and an update on his condition in a moment. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin will spend another night in critical care tonight after he was put under general anesthesia to treat a bladder issue, we are told. He had to cancel a trip to Brussels and pass his deputies on to his deputy at the Pentagon. Of course, all of this comes after he was criticized and apologized after he failed to inform the White House and the president about his previous hospital stays. Right now, we are told that his prognosis remains excellent. And obviously, everyone here at CNN is wishing him a speedy recovery and that he's out of the hospital soon. We'll continue to keep you updated. Thank you for joining us. CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillips starts now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.